I'm excited, guys. This is, uh, it feels like Christmas is coming. Advent is, is on us starting next week. Um, we got snow. Adam's got his ugly Christmas sweater on. <laughs> I told him it's a week too soon. Advent starts next week. But uh, it's, it's an awesome time of year. People are uh, just inclined towards things of the faith. They're inclined towards, towards church and, and what they view as religion. And this is an opportunity for the church to be the church, for our church to just be a witness in our city. So next week, uh, we do this every year. We celebrate Advent here. Uh, and so we do four weeks leading up to, up to Christmas. And our next series is called BC, uh, Before Christmas. And we're, we're going through the book of Isaiah, or a couple verses in Isaiah. And we're going to talk about the first Advent and, and how... We're, how, how the whole church, the, the whole people of Israel, everyone is, all of history is waiting for this one moment in time when Jesus is going to come, when the Messiah is going to come. And, and then he comes, he, he does his thing, right? And then now we're actually in the second advent. We're waiting for the second coming of Christ. So a lot of what is happening in the first advent, there's so many parallels to what, what, what's happening in the second advent, which is what we live in today. So we're going to touch, touch on that over the next four weeks, talking about Jesus as the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, and prince of peace over the next four weeks. Uh, so those, those cards in your program that you got this morning are invite cards that give you courage to hand to somebody and invite them, someone at work, your neighbor, uh, because like I said, people are just inclined towards spiritual things right now. So use those this week. Uh, we've, I don't recommend recommend doing this, but we've had someone come and be a vital part of our church over the past, she's in Mexico now uh, on missions, uh, over, uh, over the past couple of years, because she was walking Ryerson's campus, and she found one of our cards on the ground. So maybe you just throw them on the ground. <laughs> but take them from here and put them somewhere, uh, and maybe someone will, will pick it up. All right. Let's, let's go into charisma. This is our last sermon in this series. This has been an awesome series for us, guys. We started off with talking about leadership and serving. Last week, we talked about administration and giving. We hit healing in there and miracles and tongues and prophecy and uh, the apostolic and mercy and, and all the gifts that are listed in 1 Corinthians 12 we hit. And we're finishing today with faith and love. And I'm a little sad that we're finishing this series. It's been a really good series. And I hope that through it, you've, you've discovered your gifts and you've, you've started to figure out how you can be activated and move forward in those gifts. If you're still trying to figure out what your gifts are, ask people around you or take that spiritual gifts test on spiritualgiftstest.com. And it's like a 10-minute test and it can point you in the right direction. Uh, but part of... Part of us being the church is helping you realize what your gifts are. And, and so just ask. Ask around in your small group. Ask around uh, with, with your uh, significant other. Ask your friends. And we'll be able to tell you probably what your gifts are. So finishing up today with faith and love. This week I was driving my girls home from school. And this is a real conversation that happened this week. Uh, it's amazing what a five and a six-year-old talk about. So we passed by the place where we got our Christmas tree last year. And, and Emerson, 
Uh, and, and Emerson says, hey, Daddy, uh, how do presents end up under our Christmas tree? And I'm like, what do you mean? Like, I put them there. <laughs> uh, what do you mean? She's like, well, when they come from, like, Nana, or Missy's mom, for instance, how do they get here? Because Nana lives, lives in the States. Uh, so how do they, how do they, she says, oh, she says, how do they appear under our tree? And I was like, I was kind of confused. And, and she, she said, well, for example, Santa is a flying sleigh real, Daddy? <laughs> and I'm like, no, no, that's, that's not real. Um, and then Reagan pipes in, my five-year-old. So Emerson is very logical. She, she reasons very well. Reagan is a lot more emotionally based. And, and Reagan pipes in, and she says, Santa's not real. And I don't expect this from my five-year-old. I expect it from my six-year-old because she's just really, yeah, uh, aware. And, um, and Reagan's like, Santa's not real. And Emerson says, yes, he is. And Reagan says, well, how do you know? And she says, well, I've seen him. I saw him at the K-Club <laughs> two years ago, right? Those of you guys who were there. <laughs> and Reagan says, what's his real name? <laughs> and Emerson says, uh, Santa. <laughs> and, and Reagan says, yeah, but what's his real name? And, and Emerson says, I don't know, but I know he's Santa. And then, and then she says, Daddy, what's Santa's real name? <laughs> and I just stayed silent on the, on the issue. I'm thinking they'll figure it out themselves eventually. I changed the subject, actually. That's what happened. <laughs> um, uh, and I don't have issues either way. Like, they'll just figure it out. And that's what I did. Um, and I share that because that's how many of us view faith. Okay, so if we're sitting outside that conversation, we may look in and we say, wow, that sounds really naive. Like the, yeah, that's really naive that, that, they would, that they would have that discussion. You know, if you're more like Reagan, uh, some of you guys are more like her. It's, it's more, what I say, she's normally emotional-based, but for her, she needed 100% objectifiable, analytical, evidential. Like she needed evidence that, that he existed if she was going to make that make that step into belief. And then some of you guys are more like Emerson. You're like, yeah, you know, I saw him at the K-Club a couple years ago. Um, you know, we have a picture of her <laughs> with Santa. She's like, look, it's, it's right there. Um, and, and, and faith for a lot of us is this, we either need this 100% objectifiable truth in order to believe, or we have uh, this experiential knowledge, and, that, and that's why we believe. Or we just think, ah, it's just a bunch of, it's, it's just, you're just being naive. Faith in the Bible is different from all of those. It's just, those, are, those, those all may be pieces of what faith or trust should look like or, or belief, but faith in the Bible is, is something different. And we've misconstrued what it is and what it's supposed to be. Now, uh, this pastor, Greg Boyd, he, he, he has this awesome quote. He says, faith is not a, he says, faith in the Bible isn't a psychological concept. It's actually a covenantal concept. 
okay? So faith isn't rooted in our cognitive ability to believe without a shadow of a doubt to have 100% objectifiable truth in front of and say, yes, I have the evidence and I'm, I'm going to believe. That's not faith. He says it's, it's not this cognitive certainty in order for me to move forward in life. And many of you guys, you need that for your decisions. You need that for whether you're going to believe in God or not. And he says, no, it's, it's not this psychological concept. Faith is actually rooted in the object of our faith. Okay? Your faith is only as good as it is because you have faith in Jesus Christ. Okay? Your, your faith is only as good as the object of your faith. Like I could have, well, I won't go into that, so let, let's, just, let's just stay there. Um, and so the gift of faith, when we talk about the gift of faith, and this passage highlights, the passage that uh, Cindy read, highlights, and this just gives us context for today. I'm actually not preaching through that passage. Uh, this passage gives us context, and it highlights that faith can remove mountains, as, as Paul says there, but it's also in this context of love. So we're going to talk about both those things today, but what it does here is it removes it out of this cognitive thing that we think faith is. Now, we live in a post-enlightenment world. We live in a post, post-modern world. Uh, we live in almost a, a post-Christian world. And, and so our, the concepts of faith that you're going to talk to people about in our city are very, uh, they're, they're varied. But many of them are going to go back to the cognitive knowledge. And what Greg Boyd has highlighted for us is that it's not about a psychological certainty, but it's about a covenant with your object of faith, and that's Jesus Christ. So you can't expect to not waver in life. So just take your journey of faith, for instance. I don't know where you are in your journey of faith. You may just be starting out. You may have been, you may be in the middle somewhere, but uh, Megan mentioned mountaintop and, and, and valleys, and your faith may be wavering a bit. But you can't expect that you're not going to waver in your faith. Let me rephrase that. You can't expect not to waver in your faith if you're, if you know, and you're, if you're secure in who Jesus is. So those things are proportional to each other. When you're secure in Christ, you, you, will, you won't waver as much in your faith. And this faith involves a tremendous amount of perseverance and belief in who Jesus is. Okay, so this is what, this is what the writer of Hebrews gets at. And so, we're, I'm going to jump around a little bit with different scripture passages here because uh, there isn't a, a specific passage that just, just talks about what faith is in the Bible. So we read that one to give us context. I'll go back to 1 Corinthians 13 to finish up. Uh, but I'm going to go to Hebrews right now. And I can't remember. Do we have this passage or no? Okay, that's fine. Um, this is your typical faith definition passage where a lot of people go for faith. And uh, this is Hebrews 1, uh, verses 1 through 3, or Hebrews 11, verses 1 through 3. And the writer of Hebrews says faith is a few things here. He says, one, it's, it's an assurance. He says it's the assurance of things hoped for, meaning it's, it's the reality of things hoped for. This word assurance means it's, it's the reality. We don't have to hope for the reality. We actually have the reality. And he says it's, it's the conviction of things not seen, the conviction, the, the proof of things that aren't seen. 
And he says in verse 2 that we actually have, we can look back in the history and see the people of old, he says, they received their commendation by faith. So we can actually look back and see that faith has proven itself over many, 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 many years. And we can look back and see that in people. And verse 3 says, faith produces understanding. Oftentimes we think faith is the opposite of understanding, or our world thinks that, but faith actually produces understanding. He says, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what, it was, what is seen was not made out of the things that are visible. So the beginning of faith for anybody, he says here, is that we just see the universe. And that's the beginning of anyone's journey of faith. And that's, that's where it starts. So wherever you are on your faith journey, if, if you say, I've never, ever believed in God and never believed in, in uh, the church and Jesus, uh, you can just look around you, the Bible is saying, and, and, and you're going to have a certain measure of faith. And when I talk about faith this morning, there's, there's, uh, there's faith that leads to salvation, which if you're in Christ, you have that. There's, uh, there's uh, the gift of faith, okay? And, and this, this is a supernatural endowment of faith, of someone who perseveres beyond doubt, who moves forward, who endures, and that faith produces steadfastness not only in them, but they do it for the church, okay? So someone who's gifted in the gift of faith, their responsibility is to do this for the church. They do this with the church. But that doesn't excuse the rest of us who have uh, faith uh, that's led into salvation, and we're living, we're just living in, in faith. So here's, here's an example, because most of you, most of us say, if we're going to believe in something like this, we're going to need, we're Reagans, we're going to need 100% objectifiable evidence in order to believe. But that, that, that would not be, that would actually not be faith. And here's, Here's, here's an example. Um, well, so both Missy and I, we, we operate in the gift of faith. Um, this is why when we told people we were moving to Toronto to start a church, and they said, you're crazy, why would you give up your jobs, why would you leave your home, why would you leave your family? God's not, we had people say, God's not going to use you up there, God's not going to do anything uh, up there, and uh, blah, 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 we heard all this stuff. We didn't have enough money to move up here, we moved up here anyways, all this stuff. Uh, and it's because we had faith. I, I didn't think we were operating in the gift of faith then, but I look back and say and see that how we were operating in that gifting. And uh, what every, everyone thought we were foolish. Everyone, and it often looks naive and foolish. Um, but uh, I look back at my life, and so many steps in my life are operating in this gift of faith, even when I first uh, met Missy. And... I remember the first time I, I walked into this university classroom, it was February 15th, it was a Friday, 2002, and it was around 2.30 or 3 o'clock in the afternoon. I walk into this classroom, and I see an angel. <laughs> and I realized I was looking in a mirror, so. <laughs> but I see, I see Missy sitting there, and it was the first time I'd ever seen her in my life. For all I know, she didn't exist before that point. She was 20 at the time. Uh, I think I was 21. And, um, and for all I know, she had not existed. Like, that was the moment in time when, when, she, when she existed. Because it was the first time I actually set eyes on her. 
So if we're going by objectifiable evidence, like that was when I first met her, my very first time, and I, and and uh, she could tell me all the stuff about herself in the past 20 years, but I couldn't verify any of it. I could verify some of it, I guess. Like she could say, "Well, I had braces growing up," and I could look at her teeth and say, "Yeah, I can I can see that." Um, or she could say, "I I." went to um, Indiana growing up <laughs> for, for a vacation. And she could show me pictures, and I could say, okay, yeah. But for the most part, everything before I met her, I took on faith. I took on faith that those things actually happened to her. When you think about your life, most of how you live your life is, is taken by that, especially in, per- in particular, in particular, your relationships. Have you guys, just after meeting somebody or before you meet somebody, ever Facebook stalk somebody? Yeah, you can put your hands down. <laughs> I knew Mel was going to raise her hand. <laughs> She's like, I don't care. I, uh, I do it all the time. Yeah. <laughs> so you can you can know know something about people from Facebook, right? You can you can know who people are, but you can't exactly know and have a relationship with somebody just based on Facebook. Like, if you went to my Facebook page, there's certain things in there that have defined who I am that you would never get from Facebook. You would never know that I have a twin sister. You'd never know that uh, I grew up around the world. You would never know that um, I'm half Thai. Like, all these things, I don't post them. They're not on my Facebook page. Um, But those things define who I am. And... My point is this, when I said your, your faith is only as strong as, as knowing Jesus, the object of your faith, you can't, you can't Facebook stalk Jesus. And so wherever, you're, wherever you are in your faith journey, you can't, you can't exercise faith from afar. You actually have to be in the relationship and in the midst of it. And there's a, there's a guy in our church. His name is Happy. Happy, come on up here. And I don't know what you guys went through this week. This is, I've, I've counseled many of you this week through so many different things. Um, and you're sitting here this morning, and uh, you're like, I don't know how I'm going to go through the next step. I don't know how I'm going to do, I don't know how I'm going to face this afternoon. I don't know how I'm going to face Monday. I don't know. There, there's so many things that you guys are going through. And what I want to show you this morning when we talk about faith in terms of perseverance is we have someone in our church who's 81 years old. <laughs> yeah, he always makes this joke, I'm, I'm dyslexic, so I, he thinks he's 18 uh, instead of 81. Um, who has been following Jesus for over 50 years, who has been through dark periods, who has... Uh, battle temptation, who has lost loved ones and yet is still following Jesus. So this morning, I want you to see that there's hope and hopefully courage gets put into you this morning just through Happy's testimony of how he's still following Jesus all these years as an 81-year-old. And God has given him to our church to encourage us in that, that yes, it is possible. Yes, and it's not just possible, it's fruitful and it's beneficial. So why don't you share your story with us? Uh, thank you very much. A lot of people don't believe it, but my name is Happy. 
and it used to be happiness, happy. But one day a guy was walking down the street and he screamed at me, hey, Ness. And I said, me fix. So I changed it to happy, happy. Anyway, I'm going to tell you why I changed my name. In 1971, Colonel James Irwin landed on the moon. He was the second man landed on the moon. In 1969, Neil Armstrong was the first man on the moon. But anyway, Colonel James Irwin was speaking at a, in a Hamilton at a big conference. And after the conference, I walked up to him and I said, what did I say? I forgot. <laughs> I have dementia. <laughs> no, what did I say? I walked up to him and I told him about my life and he was so taken back that he put his arm around my shoulder and he, and he prophesied over me and he said, God has a special purpose for your life. Wow, I was 20, 27 years old, just become a brand new Christian. So I'm going to tell you about the... Before the prophecy, this is A.D., and then you're going to hear after B.C. This is B.C., and then you're going to hear after A.D. You know what? I was born at early age. Everybody was born at early age. <laughs> but i got to tell you a little, little sense of humor before this. There was a parrot. No, there was a burglar broke into an empty house, and he was casing the joint, and... Uh, he heard this voice say, Jesus is watching you. He took his flashlight and ran, shone around the room, didn't see nobody. He went back to the thievery. Then he heard the bird say, Jesus is going to get you. <laughs> and then he flashed his light up in the corner and saw a bird in a, in, a, in a cage. And he said, shut up, you stupid bird. And he went back to the thievery. When he collected all his booty, he was going out the back door. He saw a German shepherd with his teeth bared, and he heard the, the bird say, Sick him, Jesus! <laughs> That's the story of my life. I was that burglar. I'm going to tell you, I was, a, I was a thief and a crook. My mother died two hours after I was born. My father used to smash me in the face as a little child, tell me I murdered his wife. So I lived that life until I was 27 years old, believing I murdered my mother. Wow. I'm glad you're going to keep an open mind because I was raped when I was 10 years old by a 20-year-old next-door neighbor. And you're not going to believe it. I'm 81 years old, and that's still traumatic in my life. It'll always be traumatic. Lots of people say, get over it. But you can never get over it. Abused victims never get over it. You know what, dear friends? I was severely dyslexic. So I failed grade one, I failed grade six. Who fails grade one? Nobody! <laughs> Mel Lashman said, nobody! <laughs> anyway, I quit school at age 14. And you know what, I'm going to skip a lot of my story. When, when I was 17 years old, I had a most severe car accident. I was unconscious nine days, all my body broken. I was like, oh, I, I don't want to tell you. It was awful. Anyway, I got out of the hospital at 17 years old. And when I was 19 years old, I went to the doctor and I said, I want to commit suicide. I don't, I don't want to live anymore. And he recommended I go to 
St. Thomas Mental Hospital. I went there. I was there several months. But you know what? I never told about my mother dying and my father said he murdered his wife. I kept all these secrets to us. You're not going to believe it to us. 51 years old. I never told anybody in my life about my mother, that I murdered my mother. Anyway, at, at, at uh, 21 years old, I joined the Army and I made that song come true. You're in the Army now. Woody, get out of here. <laughs> anyway, I, I was in the Army for a year. I was severely dyslexic. But they wanted me in there because I was colorblind, and a, and a colorblind person can spot a camouflage very easy. But there was more problems. I just drank all the time. I drank from 13 years old to 23 years old. Every day, every night, I tried to bury the life I came from. But <clears throat> that's what alcoholics do. They just drink and drink and drink. But I got some good news for you. I got 54 years clean and sober. Just one day at a time. So in, in, when I was in Stony Mountain Penitentiary, who would ever think a miracle would happen? A miracle happened. The first day I went in, there was two convicts in the dormitory fighting with knives and blood spattered all over my shirt. And I said, oh, oh I'm in for something. So there was a... It was uh, just to get out of my cell. My next door neighbor said to me one day, he said, how would you like to come with me? You can get tailor-made cigarettes and free coffee, fresh coffee and tailor-made cigarettes. And I said, sounded good to me. So I went there, and the miracle happened. A wonderful miracle. In uh, 1953, in October 1953, I walked into the rooms of Alcoholics Wow. It's so overwhelming. I walked in the rooms of Alcoholic Anonymous, and you know what? I never left. I, I, I've traveled hundreds and hundreds of, me of meetings all across North America telling my story about Alcoholic Anonymous. But on December the 8th, 1962, I was walking out of my apartment building. I had a basement apartment, and my landlord and landlady, they were Baptists, and they loved me. And he wanted me to go to church with him. And I said, I'm a Roman Catholic. I don't, I, I, I'm going to, I, I just told him I didn't want to go with him. But anyway, I was walking out of my house and this beautiful 16-year-old girl runs across the street and I was 27 years old. And she was so bubbly and she's full of joy. And she says, how would you like to go to Youth for Christ tonight? And under my breath, I said, get lost, kid. <laughs> because I was a pagan and an atheist and everything else. But you know what? I, I went there to Youth for Christ, and I never heard gospel music in, in my entire life. The only music I heard was filthy garbage, because that's the life I came from. Anyway, the, the uh, Holy Spirit was there that night, and he warmed my heart. And when the invitation was given forth, I was way up in the balcony, and I didn't think anybody would ever see me up there. And he said, how would you like to have Jesus come in your heart? And I stuck my hand up, and he asked more for more invitation. I stuck it up again. And the director of Jesus Christ says, I see you up there, young man. And you know what, friends? I ran down from the balcony up to the front of the podium, and this director was, the, was uh, Jim Wilson. He had the wonderful joy to tell me about God's plan of salvation. 
Uh, and I, uh, on December 8, 1962, I put my trust in Jesus, become a Christian, and everything has changed, completely changed. My life turned from darkness to happiness. But I didn't become happiness right away. I, I, that's another story. I haven't got time. But anyway, I, I, I went to uh, first time at church in my, first time in my life I went to Westside Baptist Church. And uh, I was 27 years old, but you never know what I look like a kid because I never worked all my life. And I, and I just looked so young. I went to the youth group and they were all 13 to 19 years old. And they were all on fire. And this girl walks in, I walked in this Baptist church to the Bible class. And this girl saw that I didn't have a Bible in my hand. She dropped the Bible in my hand and goes, ah, it scared life out of me. But you know what? I turned to John, I, I turned to Genesis chapter six, verse five, and it said, and God saw the wickedness in the earth was great and every imagination and the thought of his heart was only evil continually. And that's me, the kind of vile life I came from. But I'm not gonna tell you the kind of life, it was awful. Anyway, at this at uh, Westside Baptist Church, I started attending for a whole year and I'm learning God's word. And here as a brand new Christian and uh, a pastor one day, he said, why doesn't, why doesn't someone, why doesn't everybody in the audience ask the Lord to lead them to one soul in this year? And I didn't know what a soul was. I didn't know how to, uh, tell my love to the children or anybody, tell anybody. Anyway, I stuck my hand up and I said to the pastor, I'd like to be, I'd like the, the Lord to lead me to 25 souls this year. And in no time, the Lord, I walked up to the pastor and I said, the Lord has led me to 25 souls. What do I do now? And he says, ask him for more. So I did. So what happened was I went to Barton Street Jail and I was telling my sto story just like I'm telling it now. And this young man, he's 23 years old, he came up to me and he said, will you come back to, and talk to me on a, on a Tuesday night? And I said, I sure will. I just walked, I walked up to the, on Tuesday night, I walked up to the Barton Street Jail and I knocked on the door and the guard, guard answered the door and I said, can I sing Doug Gowers? Nobody knows Doug Gowers, so. I said, can I see Doug Gowers? And he says, no, you have to see him through his lawyer. I was so brokenhearted, I, I walked down the stairs and I stopped and I said, what am I doing? God sent me here. So I walked back, to, knocked on the door again, a different guard answered the door and I said, can I see Doug Gowers? And he said, sure, come on in. <laughs> you know what? He led me to a small room in this convict come in and he said, he was 23 years old and he, he walked up to me and he said, I murdered my wife and I can't get right. I murdered my wife and, and uh, what, how can I be forgiven? And you know what, my dear friends, through three verses of scripture, he admitted he was a sinner, believed on the Lord Jesus and received him as a savior. And his father was in public relations. His father came to the Lord and became a pastor and that was only the start. The second, the second week I went to Burton Street Jail, 
And I, I told the same story I'm telling now. And a, a fellow comes up to me and he said, I'm a Jew and I want to hear more about Jesus. And in a few minutes later, he admitted he was a sinner, believed on the Lord Jesus, received him as a savior. And then he became a completed Jew. Do you know what a completed Jew is? A born again Christian. Hey, but then I was 29 years old and I cried out, God, I'm a virgin, I'm 29 years old. You know what, I not only was an alcoholic, I hated sex, I hated sex. I just had no concept that it was, uh, that it was for marriage and for the family. But you know what, God answered my prayer and he sent me this, I was 29 and he sent me uh, this girl, she was 21 years old, he sent me into sent me into her life, and we started dating for a year, and then I asked her to marry me, and the rest is history. I wish it was history. It wasn't a mystery either. We had three wonderful children. My daughter's 50 now, and she's been a nurse for 26 years, and my son's a nurse. He's uh, 46 to 44, and he's been a nurse for... 24 years and you know what they love me I love them they heard my story many times I could tell you more and more and more but it looks like looks like my time is gone but maybe I will come back again someday <laughs> thank you very much and God bless you yeah uh, we will have you tell more later for sure um what you see is is a life of perseverance. Um, I mean, Happy only got to when he was like around 30 years old, and he's lived 50 more years <laughs> since then. And what you just see is a life that, that is full of perseverance, endurance, steadfastness, uh, and it's all because he loves Jesus, and he's always pointing to Jesus, and he knows Jesus. And because he knows Jesus, he doesn't waver in his faith. And Happy could probably do a whole series on his life, a whole sermon series on his life, and just share with us uh, what Jesus has done over and over again to him and through him in, in all manner of, of ministry and living situations and, and all those things. So our, our church has been given a tremendous resource and, and someone who most of us are young, and, and we can look towards someone like that and say, wow, like, it's possible to live a life faithful to Jesus. It's possible to, um, to persevere. And it's not just possible. It is fruitful. It's beneficial. And so use, use Happy, use Al uh, as resources for, for that. Uh, they're the only elder statesmen in our church uh, besides Archie. Uh, <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> I don't even think he's here. We always give Archie a hard time. <laughs> oh, he is. <laughs> uh, use, use these guys uh, for counsel, for wisdom, for advice, because it's hard, guys. Uh, I know life is hard, and there's so many things that distract you from faith. There's so many things that push you off the path, and... Uh, and when you look at a life like Al's and Happy's, you see that maybe, maybe I can actually persevere and make it. 
And, and when you have that perspective, it makes your issues, uh, it, it gives you a new perspective on your issues where you know that they're not bigger than God. They're not bigger than Jesus. The, these issues and these problems, these questions are not bigger than the God I love and I serve and who loves me. Uh, so as, as, let's go back to, to love. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hit love really quickly here um, since we're running out of time. And this is a passage that's read a lot in, in weddings, and, but this passage is specifically in reference to spiritual gifts. So as we close our spiritual gifts series, uh, think of love uh, not just for faith, but for, for all your gifts, whether you're gifted administratively in leadership, ser- uh, serving, uh, mercy, the prophetic, whatever it is, giving. Uh, think of love in, in that context according to your gifts. This is verse 4, which I think we have. It says, love is patient and kind. Love's long-suffering. That's, that's the word for patience here. It's long-suffering. Like, I love that imagery that it gives us that we, we, we may have to suffer for a long time. That's what, that's what love is. It's kind, meaning it's full of mercy. It gives mercy easily. It does not envy. It does not boast. It, it isn't self-satisfactory. Like it doesn't, uh, you know, it's, it doesn't boast in itself. <clears throat> it's not arrogant or rude. It, you know, think about the word arrogance. Love doesn't, uh, love doesn't think more highly of itself. It doesn't need to. It, it doesn't need to. Love is just love. It's not rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable. So it's not easily distressed. It's not easily annoyed. Love is not irritable. It's not resentful. It's not full of bitterness or resentment. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing. And, and look at the prepositions here. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Okay, in, in, the, in the original language, that's actually one word. Rejoice with is, is one word. And so you know the truth rejoices, and, and love just rejoices with that. It bears all things, it covers, it protects all things, it believes, it, it, it hopes all things, it endures, it perseveres all things. And then the beginning of verse 8, uh, which I don't think is up there, love never ends. See, the, the enemy of, of faith, guys, isn't doubt. The enemy of faith is fear. And when you pair faith and love together guess what happens? Do you guys know what the Bible says happens to fear when there's love? And when love looks like this, it casts it out. And that word there, that word casts out is, is a, a uh, like warfare type word. It, it's not this gentle word like love is like, hey, fear, you know, why don't you follow me over here and go out this way? No, love comes in like, like, uh, Rambo, <laughs> just like, that was the only image I have, <laughs> and like mows down fear. I mean, it like takes fear, and fear is binding you in so many things in your life, and that's the enemy of faith for you. Fear is just binding you. Love comes in when it looks like this, and it actually binds fear, and then it throws it out, and it casts it aside. That's the power of love. When love looks like this, when it's, when it's rooted in Christ Jesus, and when you're using your gifts paired with love, it binds fear. Fear no longer binds you. And fear flees from that presence. That's the power of love that looks like this. 
And this is Hebrews 11. This is, this is, all the, this is often called the hall of faith in the scriptures, Hebrews chapter 11. It's because you see here all these saints, uh, all these saints living out in faith. And these guys are just, these guys, these girls, they're just regular people. But they're not letting fear bind them. They're not letting the fear of the unknown, they're not letting a, I don't know 100% if I should do this, stop them from moving forward. And what's amazing when you read through this passage in chapter 11, there's a couple things that stick out. It says, most of them didn't receive what they were actually promised. So they, they were living not for themselves, but for the next generation. So they didn't see the promise completely fulfilled. They just knew that it was going to be if they were faithful. They just knew they had to keep on moving forward. And it says that they knew a better country awaited them. And that's why they're full of courage. And if you look through this list, it wasn't all mountaintops. Actually, I don't, I don't read anything about a mountaintop in here. It was, they were faithful in front of lions. They're faithful through conquered kingdoms. They escaped the edge of the sword. They, they quenched the power of fire. There are foreign armies before them. They were weak and faith made them strong. And because of that, people received their dead back. It says some were tortured, but they knew that they would rise again to a better life. They were mocked, they were flogged, they were put in chains, they were in prison, they were stoned, they were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats. They were destitute and poor. They were afflicted, mistreated. And it says the world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had something better for them. That apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Their story is our story, is what he's saying. Your story is our story. Our story is our city's story. And when we live out in faith, we pair it with love. And it says, he says after this, Jesus is the author and perfecter of that type of faith. We can endure anything. Jesus endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. And so when you're struggling, know that it just takes perseverance. And God is there for you in that. And sometimes you have to push through those obstacles. Sometimes you have to push through those walls. And it looks like you're never going to scale that wall. It looks like you'll, you'll never push through it. But all of these saints, when it looked like the wall was insurmountable, they pushed through because they knew that God had something better for them than their current situation. And they're part of a much grander story. And before the writer of Hebrews jumps into this, the, the last verse he says before he talks about faith is this to encourage us. He says, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. He says, we're the ones of faith. 
who preserve our souls. And that's what we have to offer our city, guys. And that's what we have to offer this world. When we pair faith and love, man, our city, our city can, can't go against those. Our city says, I want, I want that. When those things look like what we read about love and they, they look like what we read about faith, our city says, I need that. Your neighbors say that. Your, your, your coworkers say that. Your family says, I, I need that in my life. And we have that to offer our city based on Jesus Christ, based on the object and perfecter and author of our faith. So if you are on your journey of faith, if you just started your journey of faith, that's what we're inviting you into this morning. We're inviting you into a life that is secure in Christ Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. That can, that a, a life that uh, is one that is not easy. Jesus says this life is tough, but one that when we persevere, it produces endurance in us, steadfastness. Our faith is, is brought to maturation, James says. And we know this because we await a better country. We know that God has something better for us in our current situation. Jesus says, I came to give you abundant life, and it's a different quality of life, and this is exactly what it looks like.